Please take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament to the book of 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20. We are uh, continuing our series this morning on favorite Bible stories, and I'm going to kind of go out of order a little bit here. And I'm going to go out of order because um, uh, this passage kind of builds somewhat on what we looked at two Sundays ago. Uh, If you were here two Sundays ago, you remember it's this very interesting account of J.L., this woman, and this general uh, named Sisera, where J.L. takes a a tent peg while Sisera is sleeping, and she, she drives it through his skull and kills him. And I, I mentioned to you uh, that Sunday, two weeks ago, that that, that is uh, a significant image in Scripture, uh, the image of a head being crushed. Um, throughout the Bible, we get all these little, little glimpses, um, little hints, and, and it's a reminder of, of God's earliest promise from Genesis chapter 3 that he would send uh, the Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. He would destroy, defeat the devil on our behalf. And, and so since one of you asked that we look at this story this morning, I thought that today was a, a good time to do that so that we might kind of build on this reminder of a head being crushed. And so 2 Samuel chapter 20, we'll read the entire chapter. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and he said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon. Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maka, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. 
And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. And a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. And a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. <clears throat> when you read through the book of 2 Samuel, uh, you come to the conclusion pretty quickly that David's life was not easy. We, we often picture David in this very uh, romantic light, right? He was, uh, he was a warrior, uh, killed Goliath. He was a, a great military man, a, a great king. But the, the truth is, you read through 2 Samuel, and, and he had serious problems in his life and in his reign. He wasn't a whole lot different from us. I would think that in almost every pew this morning, there are uncertainties. In almost every pew this morning, there are things that trouble you, things that cause you anxiety, things that cause you to lose sleep. And the fact of the matter is that life is very fragile. Life is very uncertain. Life is often very unstable. What do we do when uncertainty comes? What do we do when difficulty comes? Where do we turn when life is uncertain for us? Where do you turn when you are anxious and, and when you are fearful and when life seems so unstable? This is why, brothers and sisters, we need to remember the character of God. This is why we need to remember who God is. And not only who he is, but who he is for us, his people. This is why you need to remember who he is for you, his covenant child. And that's one of the things you notice when you read through the Psalms, when you read the Psalms of David, and, and when you read them with the understanding and the background that, that David had a difficult life. And you read the Psalms and you understand that's what David did. David looked to the character of God. David understood who God was and who God was for him. For example, in Psalm 27, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
God is my light, David says. God is the one who directs my steps. God is the one who is with me always. God is my salvation. He is the one who has saved me from my my greatest problem, the problem of my sin. And God is the strength. He is the stronghold. He is the protector of my life. No one and nothing can separate me from him. David understood that. And and I pray that for all of us this morning, we understand that, that that as we go through life and as as difficulty hits us, as trial hits us, as uncertainty comes, as life becomes hectic and chaotic and uncertain, that you can know who God is and that you can know who God is for you. And that most importantly, you can understand what his son has done for you so that you might have peace with him. Children, there is nothing more important than knowing that. There's nothing more important than remembering what Jesus did for you so that you would have peace with God. There are three parts to this passage this morning. Uh, First of all, there is Sheba's rebellion. Then there is David's response. And then there is Sheba's demise. As I mentioned to you, this was a very difficult time in David's life. There was a lot of turmoil at this point in David's kingdom. Uh, So much turmoil that it brought the nation of Israel to the brink of civil war. And we're now introduced to this guy named Sheba. We know a few things about him. First of all, we're told here that he's the son of Bichri. Bichri may have been the name of his father. It, It may also have been the name of the clan to which Sheba belonged. We don't know. Second, we're also told that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. That's not necessarily a good thing. Because when you read through the account of David's life, one of the things that you realize is that people from the tribe of Benjamin caused David a lot of problems. Saul, for example, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And and we all know what Saul tried to do to David, tried to kill him on a number of occasions. A guy named Shimei was also from the tribe of Benjamin. We come across him, I think it's in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, where he, he threw rocks at David. Imagine that, throwing rocks at the king and and cursing at the king. This was what Shimei did. Sheba, here in our text, is also from the tribe of Benjamin. Third, we're also told, most importantly, that Sheba was a worthless man. You see that phrase? He was a worthless man. Literally, in the original language, it could be translated a man of Belial. You you might have heard that word Belial before in in the book of... um, Second uh, Corinthians, Paul uses it as another name for Satan. And so anytime you're, you're called a man of Belial, that's not a praiseworthy thing. Sheba was a bad dude. Sheba was a troublemaker. Sheba was an instigator. Sheba was a rebellious man. And he blows his trumpet and, and he says, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his own tents, O Israel. Children, what what Sheba is saying is we don't want David as our king. We don't want this guy to rule over us. We don't want to be part of this kingdom anymore. This is a very serious offense. This is a, a direct rebellion against God's appointed and anointed king. It was a very serious thing in that day. And, and basically what, what Sheba's trying to do is he's trying to get the northern tribes of Israel to, to secede from Israel, 
to withdraw from David's rule over them. And one of the problems that we see here is that when, when troublemakers like Sheba get a willing audience, you've got big problems. That's certainly the case here. Verse 2 tells us that, that he got a willing audience. All the men of Israel withdraw from David and follow Sheba except for the tribe of Judah. They continue with David. And again, this is a, imagine that you're king of Israel and this is happening in your kingdom. There's a lot of turmoil, a lot of uncertainty. They're trying to, to leave your leadership. They're trying to get you to maybe abdicate your throne. And there's a lot of turmoil here. And now we're at the brink of civil war. It's at this point we get a, a little parenthetical piece of information. If you look at, uh, down at the very beginning of this text, it says when David gets to Jerusalem, he, he finds a reminder of when his son Absalom rebelled against him. You might remember that, that earlier in 2 Samuel, Absalom, David's son, sleeps with ten concubines. The, these women that, that, that Absalom slept with, with the full knowledge of all of Israel, this would have been a very vivid reminder to David of a very dark period in his life when his own son tried to rebel against him, when his own son tried to steal the throne and, and, and basically threw down the gauntlet in a very public way by, by sleeping with these women on the roof of a palace. Well, well, David, we're told, takes these women, he puts them in seclusion, he provides for all their needs, but he, he doesn't sleep with them again, which is a good thing. But notice the sad way that verse 3 ends. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. You know, what a, what a mess sin makes, right? Sad how these women are treated not only as mere objects to be slept with, but, but now we see the tragic course their lives take as a result of David's sin and Absalom's sin. The scene now shifts back to Sheba's rebellion, and we see David's response to this. David brings in Amasa. Amasa is the, the general of his army, and he says to Amasa, I, I, want, you to, I want you to mobilize all the troops and, and get back to me, report back to me within three days. So Amasa goes out to get the troops together, but we're told that he doesn't get the job done in three days. He doesn't meet David's deadline. Why he doesn't do this, why he doesn't do what David told him to do, we, we don't know. It doesn't tell us, but he just doesn't get the job done. And so more uncertainty, right? David gets his general to try to do something. General doesn't do it. And, and so David basically says, you know, I need to go to plan B at this point. Rather than turning to Joab, who used to be David's general, he'd just been demoted, he turns to Joab's brother, interestingly, Abishai. Abishai if you can remember, Abishai is the, the guy who wanted to lop off Shimei's head when Shimei threw rocks at David and cursed him. Abishai basically said to David, let me take my sword and let me deal with this guy and lop his head off. And David didn't allow him to do that, but, but that's who Abishai is. And David goes to Abishai and he says, um, we got a problem on our hands. There's this man named Sheba, and he's leading a rebellion just like Absalom led a rebellion. But this rebellion could be worse, and I need you to deal with this. And so David says to Abishai, I want you to take the troops with you, and I want you to hunt Sheba down before he gets to a fortified city where he can be protected from us, 
Well, we can't reach him. And so that's what Abishai does. He, he grabs Joab, his brother, along with some elite soldiers, and, and they go after Sheba. At a certain point, they get to a place called Gibeon. Gibeon was uh, about five miles northwest of Jerusalem. And they get to a place called the Great Stone, which was probably some kind of a landmark. In the original language, it's talking about a dagger, not a big sword, a small sword. And he goes up to Amasa and he says, my brother, how are you doing today? And, and he reaches over and he grabs Amasa by the beard to give him the traditional ancient Near Eastern kiss of greeting. But Amasa doesn't notice something. Amasa doesn't notice that Joab has his little dagger in his hand. Notice what verse 10 says. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Some of you all really like gruesome Bible stories. Just keep picking them. It's another one of those stories. And now why does Joab do this? Why does he take his dagger and stick the guy so that his entrails spill out all over the ground and kill him? Well, I think, as, as, as the case with Joab, it's, it's always about Joab. Joab seems to have a motto that he lives his life by, and the motto is, if someone gets in my way, I'm going to kill him. He did that with Abner. He did that with Absalom. Now he's done the same thing with Amasa. He didn't like the fact that he had lost his position of prestige. He didn't like the fact that he was no longer David's general. He's no longer the general, the general of the king's army, and so he, he kills the new general. He, he guts him like a fish. He kills him right there on the spot. A couple of things that, that we learn from Joab, and first of all, and that is the reminder of the danger of pride. Joab was a guy who thought he knew best. Joab was a guy who couldn't be told anything. Joab was a guy who always knew what should be done. No matter what anyone else said, no matter what else, any other advice he received, he always knew what was best. It didn't matter who was in authority over him, he always knew what was best. Pride is a very dangerous, deadly thing. Secondly, this is also a reminder to us not only of the deadliness of pride, but also the deadliness of envy and jealousy. Joab couldn't stand the fact that he had been demoted. Joab was angry, so angry that he killed another man in order to try and regain his position. Joab was not a man who was content. The Bible speaks often about the importance of contentment, doesn't it? Being content with what we have, being content with, with where we're at in life. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, try to better ourselves. It, it doesn't mean that, that we should not pursue higher education or job promotion. But, but it does mean that we should be thankful with what we have. And, and we should leave honors and promotions ultimately in God's hands. Joab, though, couldn't see that. Joab was a man struck with envy and jealousy and pride. And in this really rather chilling scene, he has just murdered in cold blood 
Amasa. And Joab, in his mind, Joab's back in charge. I'm the new leader. And, and now he's going to continue with his brother, Abishai, the, the pursuit of this worthless man named Sheba. Now, now how are David's troops going to react to what they've just seen? Well, one of Joab's young men stands next to Amasa's lifeless body, and notice what he says in verse 11. He says, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. In other words, if, if you're for David, you're going to follow Joab. That's kind of hard to do when, when you walk by the road and, and here is this Amasa guy and, and you realize he's just been killed by Joab. His, his entrails are all over the place. Kind of, kind, of be hard to, kind of hard to be loyal to a guy who was just murdered gruesomely, the king's former general. So the solution is, of course, we're going to hide Amasa's body. They, they take it off the main road. They throw it out in the field. They cover it up. And now they're going to go after Sheba, after, after Sheba. Sheba's demise. The scene shifts at this point. The focus is now back on him. Sheba's traveling all through the tribes of Israel. You can imagine being Sheba. You're, you're trying to find a place to hide at this point. You're trying to find a fortified city so that David and his army can't get you. And he comes to this city called Abel of Beth Makkah. This, this was way up north. It's about a about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. The, the picture is that, that, that this guy, Sheba, is trying to go anywhere he can, get as far away as he can from David to hide. Now, there's something interesting in verse 14. Notice what it says at the end of that verse. It says, all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. Something's changed here. At the beginning of this chapter, almost all of Israel was following Sheba. But now it's just his fellow clansmen. It's just his fellow Bichrites. He's, he's lost a lot of followers. Somehow, Joab figures out where Sheba's hiding. He figures out where he's at. Verse 15, all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Children, do you, do you know what it means to besiege a city? In that day, um, cities were surrounded with walls. We, we don't have any walls here in Ripon. Might need walls at the border, but we don't have walls here. Um, the, these walls were designed to protect the city from invasion. But what an enemy army would do is, is when they wanted to attack a city, they would, they would surround all the city walls and all the city gates and, and they would cut off any food and water supply that was going into that city. Basically, it's a, it's a military blockade. It's designed to, to isolate, to cut off that city from receiving food, water, medical supplies, etc. And so what would happen, the people in that city would eventually say, well, we don't want to die by starvation, we don't want to die by disease, and so we're just going to give up. We surrender. That's what a siege was designed to do. In addition to this, Joab and his troops have also built a, built a mound or a ramp against the wall in order to get over the wall and into that city. And, and they're attacking the walls with battering rams. And so you've got all this stuff going on at this city. You've got, you've got the city walls surrounded. 
You've got the, the Israeli army going up over the walls. You've got battering rams hammering the walls. Joab, the picture is Joab is going to do anything he can to get to this one man, to get to Sheba. He's going to do anything he needs to do to get to this rebel. As all of this is going on, this, this wise woman calls out from inside the city. And she says, I want to talk to Joab. You can almost picture her maybe standing on, on top of a wall and, and yelling down, send Joab over here. I want to talk to Joab. And Joab comes over and, and she says, um, you know, there used to be a saying in this city that if you wanted to settle an argument, you would ask the town of Abel. What she's saying is that apparently this, this town, Abel of Beth Maka, was known for giving wise counsel. Maybe there was a counseling center there. Maybe there was a counseling service there. Maybe this woman was part of that counseling service. Anyway, she, she continues on and she says, you know, I'm a, I'm a peace-loving woman. I, I don't want to see bloodshed. I don't want to see destruction. I don't want to see our city destroyed. Joab, you're in the process of destroying our city. Why are you doing this? Well, why do you want to destroy something that belongs to the Lord? In other words, God's covenant people are in here. Joab, why do you want to destroy them? And and Joab says, believe me, I I don't want to destroy your city. I don't want to wipe out your people. That's not my intention. The only reason I'm here is for one man. His name is Sheba. I want him. If you give me Sheba, I and my troops will withdraw from your city and let you alone and live in peace. And so this woman comes up with this this great solution, right? She says in verse 21, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to chuck his head over the wall for you. And then you'll know you've got Sheba. They make a deal, right? Joab gets Sheba's head. And in return, this city is protected from Joab's army. And so the woman goes to, to the people of her city with this idea. We, we can assume that maybe she's a leader in the city. Maybe she's on the city council. She goes to all the other leaders, and, and they say, you know what, lady, you're right. That's a great idea. Well, let's chop off his head, throw it over the wall, and our city will be safe. And so they find Sheba. They cut off his head. I don't know how they do it. We're not told. They cut off his head. They throw it over the wall. Joab blows the trumpet. And the army withdraws. That's how peace was made that day. One man was sacrificed to spare all the people of that city. Now this is another one of these passages in the Bible. If you're in your home doing family devotions and you read 2 Samuel 20, your, your kids are going to probably chuckle at this story. They're going to talk about the guy who gets stabbed with a dagger and his guts spill out. They're going to they're talk about the guy who gets his head chopped off and thrown over the wall. But there's more to it than this. There's, there's conflict. There's war. There's rebellion. There's strife. I mean, this is an ugly, ugly scene. Life is ugly. But, but by this one man's death... There's peace. 
And, and let's face it, you know, we, we may live a thousand, thousands of years later and we may think we're, you know, we're more advanced, we're smarter, we're better. Come on, we're not really a whole lot different, are we? We too are, are people by nature who are often involved in strife and, and conflict. Our lives, your life, my life, filled with stress, anxiety, uncertainty. Where do we turn when, when life is so uncertain and so difficult? Where do you turn when, when you have a relationship breakdown? Where do you turn when you get a, a horrible diagnosis from the doctor? Where do you turn when, when your finances are tight where do you turn when, when life is just so chaotic and so busy and so filled with pressure, the pressure of raising children, the pressure of work, the pressure of all these other things? Where do you turn to find peace? Well, there was one who was sacrificed for the peace of many. There is one who has brought peace. He didn't go and hide in some fortified city so that his life would be spared. He didn't run away from what his father had sent him to do. He laid down his life of his own accord. He wasn't a rebel like Sheba. He was a perfectly righteous man. And yet he died for rebels like you and me. Because at the end of the day, we, we all identify with the main characters of this story. I'm Sheba. I have rebelled against the Lord's authority and I've gone my own way. I'm, I'm Joab, letting anger and malice and discontentment fester in my heart. And I'm David. Looking back with regret at, at things that I wish I would have done differently. And I think probably all of us here this morning would say the same thing. What is the solution to the problem of our sin? What will put away the anger and the judgment of God that we deserve? You see, at the end of the day, that, that's the most important question. How can I deal with the enmity that exists by nature between me and God? The answer to our problem is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul makes some, some wonderful statements about the work of Christ in Romans chapter 5. For example, he says, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In other words, just as Adam plunged the entire human race into sin by his own disobedience and rebellion, so by the one man's obedience, meaning Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul says in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says Christ was offered once 
to bear the sins of many. One for many. That's good news for us today. That's good news for you. That's good news for me. See, over and over, the Bible talks about this idea of propitiation. Propitiation is just this fancy theological word that means to smooth over God's wrath against our sin. God is a holy God, as a just God, as a righteous God, cannot let your sin go. He cannot let my sin go. He can't wink at it. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't pretend it didn't happen. He has to punish it. The question is, will he punish it in me or will he punish it in my Savior? Jesus Christ is our propitiation. If we are trusting in him, we can know that we have peace with God. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know this, you don't know this peace, you don't have this peace, I would love to talk to you when the service is over. Find me. I would love to talk to you. I would love to pray with you. I would love to show you from Scripture that Jesus Christ is a great and perfect Savior. But brothers and sisters, this this passage is not just about a guy being gutted. This isn't just about a guy's head being chopped off and thrown over a wall. This is about Christ. This is about what Jesus did for us so that we might have peace with God. If we are believers in Christ, no matter how uncertain our life may be, no matter how much turmoil may exist, no matter how much regret we may have, no matter how much conflict there may be with some other people in our lives, no matter what we're going through right now, if we are believers in Christ, we can leave here this morning with joy and peace in our hearts because we can know that Jesus, our Savior, gave himself for many, for all who would believe in him, for you, Christian. He gave himself so that you would be at peace with God. And now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who lives in and indwells each one of us, we can now live out the words of Ephesians 4 that say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what, what mess sin creates. We, we see it here in 2 Samuel. We see it in our world. We see it in our own lives. But we thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus, the one who gave his life for all of his people so that we might have peace with you. Give us, Lord, the joy of our salvation that we might serve you with gladness in this world so that we might rejoice that in spite of the circumstances of our lives, you are our God. 
Never will you leave us. Never will you forsake us. You are always with us. And we have peace with you. We thank you, Father, for this good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name.